Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. Good evening and welcome to Love the Words. Uh, this is a new series of Love the Words on East Leeds FM. Um, starting at 5.30, a different time, going on till 7.30 to be followed by The Delhi. So tonight we have an in-depth interview with the theatre director, Alan Lydiard. After that, Radio Free Kinsley uh, from Jimmy Andrex and Pasha Taylor, followed by Fiona Gell from Leeds Litfest talking about the Saboteur Awards for which... Uh, Leeds Lit Fest has been nominated. Then the podcast uh, that we did with Leeds Lit Fest and Romy Smith, followed by um, Who's Listening? A feature um, from young people at Chapel FM about the art of conversation. And finally, an episode of Wordy Birds. Wordy Birds is our regular spot for fiction writers and poets on our morning programme. So, that's love the words for this evening. Listen in, listen on, and uh, and tune in for the next two Tuesdays. Tuesdays in perpetuity, when we will be on air. So I'm going to be talking to Alan Lydiard, who is a theatre director of many years' experience, but also artistic director of the Performance Ensemble. So, Alan, I'm, I'm going to be talking to you about um, your career, your if you want to call it that. I, I sometimes have a, a problem with the word career, uh, but it's <laughs> your, your life as a theatre director, and particularly about your role now in the Performance Ensemble which is a fascinating thing, and I'm, we're really enjoying being connected with it. So, Alan, first of all, just take us right back to the beginning. How, how, where, did, where and how did you start out in theatre? Well, it has been a long, long time. It's certainly been a long, long time. I mean, I can remember appearing as the centurion in Androcles and the Lion at my junior school and getting an acting prize from a, a very famous film director whose son was also going to the same school as me. So it was a fantastic start that at 12 years old, I got an acting prize. And I think that kind of started everything off. Um, but anyway, I've, you know, I've now done about 40 odd years in the theater and enjoyed every second of it. And you're right. I don't think of it as a career. I think of it as a, a way of life. It is my life. You know, that's what I do. I, I make theater and I try and create exciting projects involving lots and lots of people. So, yes, the word career implies some kind of, of plan or some sort of almost predictable tra trajectory. I can never say that word. But, yeah, um, yeah so um, was there a plan for you in terms of directing? Did you, did, is that something you wanted to do from the start? 
I, I, I wanted to be an actor. You know, the very early days, I wanted to be an actor. And when I left school, I left school at 18. I didn't go to university. And I wrote to every theatre, every regional repertory theatre in the country to see if I could get a job. And two of them replied, one of which was Harrogate Rep. And um, I, I was um, offered a job there, 25 shillings a week, to be a kind of um, assistant, assistant stage manager. And I did everything. And it was magical, completely magical. I mean, it was a crazy place. And um, I remember, uh, you know, it had, um, it was very traditional at that time, Harrogate Repertory Theatre, uh, the White Rose Players. It was a beautiful theatre. And I can remember we did things like um, Bly Spirit and um, all sorts of um, um, kind of boulevard comedies. And I, I remember, you know, drinks cabinet upstage centre, French windows, and literally everybody um, uh, saying things like um, anyone for tennis or time for tea. Or, you know, it was a very, very traditional theatre, but I completely loved it and fell in love with it. And I didn't really make it as an actor. You know, I... Um, I got involved in the technical side of the work, but um, gradually I kind of moved through that into going to London and trying to make my career as a as a as an actor. But honestly, it didn't work, and um, uh, I realised I wasn't a great actor. Um, so I um, I eventually got a job as a trainee uh, director at um, a company called the Emma Theatre Company in Loughborough. And it was a touring company. It toured all the village halls around the East Midlands. And it was fantastic. Again, I loved it. And from there, I started directing. I started directing there pretty quickly um, and found that it was much better, much better to tell people what to do rather than being told what to do. Um, It was a great, great feeling, you know, to be creating uh, things in front of you. You know, I wasn't a great artist in terms of drawing or I wasn't a great writer in terms of writing but when I was with people and and had a place where we could put people I could somehow feel that I was making magic you know I felt that I was kind of organizing things in a way that was exciting for people to watch that was my that was my kind of driving force anyway I did that for a bit and eventually I started to get more establishment and uh, got a job at um a theatre company in uh, Birmingham called Second City. And then from there, I went to um, um, uh, TAG in Glasgow, the Citizen Theatre in Glasgow. And um, and for a time, I was also an associate director at Dundee Rep. Um, and it was at those, I think the changing point for me, the big time of change was um, when I was involved in Glasgow City of Culture 1990. It was a fabulous, fabulous year. I mean, I met everybody. I remember the first thing I saw was Peter Brooks' Mahabharata. Oh, and- yeah. Oh, I saw it too. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing some extraordinary parallels with my own non-career. <laughs> okay. Uh, right, but anyway, good. I'll come back to that. But yes, I also saw that production and it was totally wonderful. Yes, I remember it myself. Yeah, go I on. Saw- I'm, I'm interrupting you. The weird thing is we can't see each other. So, I, so I'm, I'm nodding vigorously at everything you're saying, but you can't see me nodding. <laughs> go on. Well, I hope I'm not kind of rabbiting on too long, but it's just... Um, Please all- do rabbit. That's what this is about. 
all these memories come sort of flooding back to me. You know, it's fantastic. Anyway, I was, a, you know, I was a director of a theatre company called TAG, Theatre About Glasgow, taking theatre to schools and communities across um, uh, the city, but also doing shows in theatres and so on. And I was given an opportunity in Glasgow 1990, City of Culture, to create a large-scale performance piece called City. It was uh, written by Tom McGrath, a very wonderful uh, Scottish writer. Um, unfortunately, he has died now, but he was a great, great writer. And he'd written this mammoth piece called City about the city of Glasgow. And so um, I was given the job of creating it for Glasgow 1990 City of Culture. Which, and we did it at the tramway, uh, which at that time had just opened with Peter Brooks Mahabharata. And it was an extraordinary building, an old tramway, you know, that they converted into a theatre space. But it had, you know, lots and lots of different spaces connected to it. And it had an enormous back uh, lot where you could, you know, you could do a incredible outdoor events um, there. And so we used the whole space and we had literally a thousand people in the show. And over the period of the two weeks that it ran there, you know, uh, thousands of people came to watch it. And it was a very, very exciting project. And it's kind of stuck with me uh, ever since. You know, I love the idea of making large scale community style pieces of work that also feel like they're not um, they're not lesser because they're called community. They're just as important as any other piece of theatre that you make in any other place. Uh, and that's been my kind of driving force since 1990. But the thing about 1990 was that I met all these amazing, amazing uh, directors. So I met Peter Brook, I met Lev Dodin, I met Robert Lepage, I met uh, Ninagawa from Japan, I met um, uh, Bergman. Uh, you know, it was incredible time. And, um, and as I was meeting these people, I was seeing their shows. And because I was a director in the city, I was invited to all the canopies before the show and the after show parties. And it was incredibly fabulous time. I've never felt anything like it before. And actually, since there's been a few, only a few things that have uh, been up there with that time that I was in Glasgow. Anyway, so... Yeah, go. No, no. <laughs> I was just just to halt your flow for 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 a second. I just wanted in 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 regards to you mentioned those wonderful uh, directors. Um, in terms of yeah, mentors that you you might have had or people who you feel have had a particular effect on your on your your working life or your 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 directing. Can you can you talk about any of any? Was there anybody who comes to mind particularly? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, I, I mean, when I left Glasgow, I went to Newcastle to run a company called Northern Stage. And I took everything that I'd learned from Glasgow to Northern Stage. So the plan was that I would create an ensemble company, a company of performers that were uh, with us 52 weeks of the year, paid 52 weeks of the year, and we would create work over a long period of time with them. And I got that from seeing the work and being with a, an incredible director called Lev Dodin from the Marley Drama Theatre of St. Petersburg. And every over the next 10 years, um, I invited him to come to Newcastle. He came to Newcastle four times. Uh, 
I asked him to create a, a project for us, an Uncle Vanya for us, and we took the whole company into uh, the, um, uh, the, 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 the rural area of Northumberland, and we stayed in a house for uh, over a week, you know, two weekends and the week in between, and we were taught by Lev Dodin during that period mm. of time. The first thing he did was read the whole of Uncle Vanya to us in Russian, uh, which we sat through, you know, and, and in a way, it, it did work. It did kind of help us. And we started to make Uncle Vanya. But um, I never, we never actually made the piece. We, because in the end, Lev Dodin didn't really want to work with anybody except for his own company. His company in, in, in uh, St. Petersburg ha, ha, have emerged from a, a school and the, and the most of the performers have worked with him, you know, all their working life. So there have been uh, actors working with him for 30, 40 years. And it, that kind of principle of the ensemble company emerged out of my conversations with Lev Dodin. Every year, for every year, every, twice or three times a year, I would go and visit him in some location somewhere in Europe and see one of his productions. And he would always take me out for dinner afterwards. And we'd just talk and he'd just tell me things. And I suppose that kind of gave me everything I needed to kind of think about how I wanted to create um, a, a, an ensemble, a world-class theatre company that was European in outlook, that was going to create work that wasn't necessarily the well-made play, but was influenced by poetry, by uh, fine art, by novels, by a whole range of different, um, uh, you know, I impulses. And, and Lev Dodin was definitely the person that did that for me. And if you compare him, sorry, I'm, uh, I can't stop talking. No, carry on, carry on. <laughs> That's fine. I, um, uh, alongside um, um, Lev Dodin, uh, we worked a lot with Robert Lepage. So we invited Robert Lepage to Newcastle again four or five times. He came with um, uh, his one-man shows and he came with his company shows to Newcastle. Um, and, um, and we got to know him very, very well. And he was an amazing, generous man. And I suppose the, um, the kind of Stanislavski method of, of Lev Dodin against the kind of devised work of, of Robert Lepage was the kind of two issues that drove me, you know, the two artists that really drove me. I mean, there are many others. Ninagawa starting his um, old ensemble in Japan an incredible influence. Again, he came to uh, Newcastle and gave his um, Midsummer Night's Dream uh, for us. Um, the gypsy communities that came to Newcastle. We had a gypsy festival. Great inspiration for me. Uh, Pralope was the company based in Germany, but, um, uh, you know, involving um, Roma people from all over Europe in the creation of their work. So um, those... Yeah. Two or three uh, companies have been a great, great influence on me. I have to ask you about Bergman because he's one of my heroes. So I just, what was he like when you met him, and what did you, well, what did you learn from him? I, I learned very little from him. Because <laughs> he, he was so scary. He was so scary. I, I met him at the reception. I saw the work. I can't even remember the piece I saw now. Uh, but I, I, I met him under, in, in the reception afterwards. And, and he was just so uh, kind of um, 
imposing. I, I sort of freaked out a little bit in front of him. And he was like a sort of, it was like I was a fan, you know, and I'd gone a bit crazy. Oh, God, oh, God, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. I, that happened twice to me because the other person it happened to was Pina Bausch. I met Pina Bausch because I was doing some work from Newcastle at the Edinburgh Festival, and we were both in the same reception. And I, I, Pina Bausch is another great hero of mine. And she, um, uh, she was extraordinary, smoking a cigarette, hardly talking to anybody, l- languishing around all over the place. And, um, uh, and, and I couldn't speak to her. I couldn't say a word to her. I just went, I think, I think, I think, I think, I think you're fantastic. <laughs> well, in terms of, so that, that in terms of mentors, you've talked about those people and those, theater, those companies. I mean, it's all, it, it does, it, it, your work does sound um, collaborative in every way, and and uh, I, I love the idea of uh, you know you were talking about God and then the whole sort of bringing in of fine art and music and a kind of comprehensive kind of rather uh, sort of everything knitted together. Is that still yeah. something that's at the heart of your work? You would say, definitely, definitely. Um, I, I'm not a great play lover. You know, people. Um, sitting on a stage talking to each other, pretending to be somebody else, doesn't appeal to me as much as something that seems to be organically devised out of a company of performers and artists. So working with people is is really the way that I like to work. I don't feel like I want to work so much. I'm not... I'm not saying this isn't wonderful, but it's not wonderful for me, where you commission a writer to write a piece of work, they go to their room, they write it, they bring it back to the rehearsal, and then you um, interpret it or, or develop it or make it happen on a stage. That doesn't appeal to me as much as that kind of idea of bringing people you love into a room and making work with them. That's the yeah. way I feel I like to make the work. So the text isn't the, isn't the thing for you? It doesn't, it's not the starting point necessarily. It could be a painting. I mean, you know, I have, um, I have taken novels as a great inspiration. So I've done versions of a lot of Orwell's work. So I've done um, 1984, I've done uh, Animal Farm. We did a co-production with a company in Barcelona of Homage to Catalonia. Um, so I've taken, I, I love Orwell and I love his writing. And, and in a way, Orwell for me is, um, he, he, his ideas are so dense, but his way of expressing them seems very easy to read. It's very comfortable to read his stories. You know, they seem to be... Um, they, they seem to be fables. They're, they're like lovely, simple fables. And, and that, for me, is a great inspiration. Orwell always has been a great inspiration. I've done, um, I, I did a, a, a version of Clockwork Orange, um, uh, you know, Anthony Burgess' novel. Uh, and that, again, was something that I, I was very inspired with at the time. I don't think I'd do Clockwork Orange now, but um, at the time it was, it, it was forbidden fruit. Um, it wasn't allowed to be shown in British cinemas. So we got the rights to do the play version of it. And of course, everybody wanted to see it because they couldn't see the film. And it was at the right time to do it. Um, but um, so, so novels, 
paintings, uh, artists, music, uh, poetry. They all, um, you know, I'm, I'm very fond of the, the poetry of Pablo Neruda. I'm very fond of, if, if I like any playwright, um, you know, of course I love playwrights, but, but it, the one that sticks out for me is um, uh, Frederica Lorca, Garcia Lorca. Uh, and I've done his blood wedding many times and I've read his poetry and I've visited his um, birthplace and I've spent a lot of time exploring the life and work of, uh, of Lorca. So there are uh, playwrights, but I don't perceive Lorca as a playwright totally. I see him as a poet yeah. and, uh, you know. So uh, it's, it's, I think that the theatre for me is not about... A tr when I was young, I loved Blythe Spirit by Noel Coward. I loved Boeing Boeing. I loved um, plays that I would see on stage with rather camp actors uh, pontificating on stage and, and getting the laughs and throwing their arms about and being terribly theatrical. I loved it. But actually, after a time, I suddenly got bored of it. And I suddenly found myself going, I don't want to see anything else where two people are sitting at a table talking to each other. I want to see action. I want to see spectacle. I want to see visual imagery. I want to see uh, things that are going to upset me. And, um, and so that's why I started to do the sort of work that I'm doing and invite um, visual artists and poets and, and, um, and, 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 and musicians and dancers uh, into my, my world. Dance was an incredibly strong influence for me. I, I, um, I, I work with dancers a lot and choreographers a lot. So that, in a way, takes us up to what you're doing with the performance ensemble. I just wanted to to ask you a bit about your work at the Dundee Rep. Yeah. Tell us about well, that. Well, uh, Dundee is an extraordinary place. It's, it's a re I, I have a great love for the place. Well, I arrived there in 1980 sometime, and it was a pretty depressed time for Dundee. There had been strikes in the, uh, you know, something like 25% unemployed at the time that I went there of the working male population. Um, and it was a very male-dominated place in terms of work, although having said that, um, the, the, the women uh, of Dundee were the kind of um, pioneers. And... Um, if you looked at the jute industry, for example, in Dundee, which was a major industry early before I arrived there, the women were the people that guided the town and, and led the town and did the work, and the men stayed at home, and, and they were called kettle boilers because they just um, sat at home and made lots of cups of tea. Uh, yeah. So when I arrived at Dundee, they were doing plays that you could have seen in any other theatre in the country. So it, it was like... Um, there were there were titles like I knocked on her cream front door, or they did um, yeah lots of plays with lots of um, uh, French windows and um, and uh, uh, drinks cabinet up centre, um, and, and and nobody from Dundee really came to see the shows. I mean, I say that uh, it was a sort of middle class. Uh, uh, 
audience that came from Brotty Ferry down the road, which was a slightly posher area of Dundee. But nobody from the schemes and nobody from the sort of heart of Dundee seemed to come to the theatre. And it seemed to me that that was a complete waste of of why we were doing things. And so I initiated in Dundee this idea of community arts and participation and bringing people into the theatre who were... um, um, who were not normally there. You know, at that time, I'm talking like in the 1980s now, um, you know, community arts was just emerging. It wasn't thought of as important. It was a sort of side issue to theatres. And the theatres were all about West End hits and, um, and actors. Um, and um, I didn't like that very much. So I started to develop work that was for, with and by Dundee people, um, and I got involved with a man called Michael Mara. If you could find some music by Michael Mara and play that, that would be just completely beautiful. Schenectady calling. Schenectady calling. Take these notes into the night and run them by the northern lights. Transport these golden bars Let this music touch the stars And snuggle down into the noose While Peely Wally makes a zeus Let this music run through his fingers Let it touch his very soul Schenectady they calling Schenectady calling And let the symbols tingle in a distant ear The signal twinkle by the precipier That long dark night let any line be near This sophisticated man And so to Wally Harlem speaks his fingers painting what his soul receives Blessed Django comes to call Smashing down those foolish walls The signal flies into the night And flashes by the Lerwick lights A nice explosion Runs through his fingers and ignites his very soul. Schenectady calling. Schenectady calling. We love you madly. Schenectady calling. He, um, he is an amazing man. He died recently, but he was called the Bard of Dundee, and he's a singer-songwriter of incredible uh, renown. Um, and uh, I work with him, a real Dundonian, a Dundonian of heart and soul. 
And um, uh, we made a piece of work together with a writer called Billy Kay called They Fairly Mac You Work, which was about um, the weavers and the, the, the people that worked, the women that worked in the jute industry. And it was a major, major hit. The people from Dundee came to see it because they recognised that their story was on the stage in the city of Dundee. And it was an incredible thing to see. People, you know, uh, for example, um, uh, the barbells would go in the interval, which meant that people should go back into their seats. It was a sort of um, etiquette of theatre that they rang a bell to bring people back into the theatre. Well, people had never been in the theatre and they didn't know what these bells were. So they thought it was last orders. So they rushed to the bar, <laughs> not to the theatre. And, yeah. um, you know, that was... Uh, yeah. But anyway, it was a great, great success. And on the back of that, I made a piece of work with the community of Dundee called Witch's Blood, which was based on a on a, 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 a book by a gentleman called William Blaine, which was a kind of dynasty of, of the Dundonian um, of history. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it involved 500 performers in 12 double-decker buses going around the city of Dundee um, and coming back in their double-decker buses to a central uh, location, uh, Duddup Castle, where they sat and watched the last 15 minutes of um, of a show. And uh, it was, again, an extraordinary um, um, uh, event, and people loved it. And I'm told that as a result of that production of Witch's Blood, the city council started to reinvest in the arts in Dundee. And today, Dundee is like the leading city of, in Scotland for culture and arts. They've just got the V&A. They've got, uh, they started the gaming uh, industry in Dundee. It's an incredibly vibrant city. Of course, there are still lots of difficulties there, but in terms of art and culture, it has really um, it changed the fortunes of Dundee. Well, it's interesting. This is fascinating to hear about uh, your work in Dundee. I did want to hear about it, partly, partly self-interested. My, my, uh, my great-grandfather came from Dundee, and uh, but I've never been myself. So oh. I, I, I plan to go and uh, spend a good week there. And you really must go, yeah. and I'll come with you. I'll come with you because there are so many things I want to see again. I haven't even seen the V&A yet, um, mm. and it's an incredible building. Um, I still know lots and lots of people at Dundee. Uh, you know, I was called an associate director at Dundee Rep, uh, but actually I was working outside of Dundee Rep most of the time, you know, in communities, in different venues, and I love the place. I really, really love the place. It has the most magnificent setting uh, you've ever seen. You know, you cross the bridge from Fife into um, uh, Dundee. It's like Manhattan. It's like, you know, traveling across, the, I don't know, the Brooklyn Bridge and, and seeing a, 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 a city emerge, but actually more beautiful, I think, than the Brooklyn Bridge. It's, uh, the Tay Bridge is just stunning. And you've got that incredible poem by William McGonagall, right. the, Tay Bridge, the Tay Bridge disaster, which yeah. you know was was very famous. Anyway, yeah, Dundee is a pretty amazing place. I mean, I could again, I could talk to you for hours about Dundee. 
I could talk to you for hours about everything. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, we might have to make this a two or three parter, but yeah. uh, but but uh, for the moment, yes, let's make the uh, you know an, an obvious connection really between your uh, between witch's blood and the the, the buses to yes. your plans for the performance ensemble. Well, you know, I'm 71 now. I gave up. Uh, I, I retired at 65 um, because I. I, I felt that was the time I should do that. But after a year, I was completely bored. And I recognized that the um, uh, that older people were not getting the kind of work and recognition that they deserved. You know, I was seeing lots of older artists who were kind of left on a kind of theatrical scrap heap. And it seemed to me that there were things to be done with older people. There was work, uh, ideas to explore with older people. And I'd taken the idea from uh, Ukiyo Ninagawa, the great famous Japanese theatre director, who um, uh, was a, a star uh, on the festival circuit. You know, he would be in every festival around the world, bringing his Shakespearean productions to the Barbican and to the Adelaide Festival and the Edinburgh Festival. An amazing man. But he reached the age of, uh, of late 70s and decided that he didn't want to work in that way anymore, but that he wanted to gather together a group of older people who he would work with to develop a new style of theatre, a new way of working with older people as the core of that work. And uh, he put an advert in the newspaper and over a thousand people applied to be a member of this company. He chose 35 and then he worked with them for the next um, uh, two years before he started to make any work with them. And then gradually they started to create work and gradually it became, you know, very good. And he toured it all over Japan and uh, to Hong Kong and to Paris and to other places. And he inspired me incredibly that that's what I needed to do. I needed to work with older people. But I didn't want to work just with older artists that I'd known all my life. I wanted to work with people that came from another sort of background and were also old, you know, that, um, that their life story and their life experience could enrich the work that we were doing in theatre. So I had the plan of creating an ensemble company again based on the the ensemble companies that I'd run in Newcastle and the ensemble companies that Lev Dodin had um, uh, um, taught me how to create. And, um, and I thought, I'll do the same again. I'll get a company of older people together, some of whom will have been professional artists all their working life, some of whom would have been teachers or, uh, I don't know, factory workers or... Um, uh, any other job, every other job in the world that they would do. And I would bring them together and I would create with them work. And I would create with them work that came from their stories, their life, their background, who they were. So the work was about creating new kinds of theatre based on the people, the stories of the people that were in the room with you. And you would start creating with them 
Um, some of them were dancers, some of them were musicians, some of them were actors, some of them were um, retired bank um, employees, some of them were teachers, some of them, one of them was a rocket scientist, you know, and, mm. um, and we worked and worked and worked with them uh, every week for the last um, two years. We made a piece um, in 2016 called Anniversary, which was, I think, kick-started the idea of the performance ensemble. And since then, we've been developing it. Every Friday we meet and we work together to, uh, to create work. And as I was working with them, I felt that what we should try to do for 2020, uh, 2023, the, the, the Leeds um, a festival of culture that was being um, organized, I thought I've got to do a piece with older people that is going to make a really big impact. You know, I'm going to take a thousand people and I'm going to work with them over the next four or five years when I started the idea and I will make something extraordinary with those people with those people, and we will, uh, we will show the world that old people are not to be forgotten, have got lots to say, are incredibly exciting people that can make spectacular work and that we can um, change perceptions of what it's like to be old in the city of uh, Leeds in 2023 and show the world that. And Leeds was the perfect place to do it because Leeds had already uh, been, you know, committing themselves to working with older people uh, for many, many years. Um, I remember um, 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 Leeds West Yorkshire Playhouse, as it was then, starting up the Heydays project, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And, um, and I knew that if I wanted to work with older people, that there was a history and, uh, and a, a, um, you know, a, a, a will to make work with older people in Leeds. So that's why I really came to Leeds, to make that happen. And I started working for Heydays to start with and then built it from there. Um, anyway, so uh, gradually, gradually, we built it year by year by year. And the plan is that we will continue to do this work over the next three years to create the most stunning piece of uh, work, however it turns out, with a 1,000 people over 60 and, 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 and make sure that people uh, recognise that older people are not dead yet. <laughs> and, well, well it, as I said before, it's, it's great to have you in Leeds. And it's not so far away from Harrogate, where you started, started. as an assistant, assistant yeah. you know, stage manager in wherever it was. Yes. So that, that must feel interesting for you to be back in Yorkshire. Yeah, it's lovely. I love it. And I loved Harrogate. You know, at the time I loved it and I've got great memories of it. And uh, we used to come to Leeds. I used to come to Leeds. And uh, when I was at Newcastle, we used to do lots of co-productions with uh, Leeds Playhouse. So we did um, Animal Farm. We did 1984. We did um, uh, we did um, Homage to Catalonia as a co-production with Leeds Playhouse. Uh, so I've taught, I think... Um, I think that Clockwork Orange came to Lee's Playhouse. I can't remember. But anyway, I've done a lot of work with Lee's Playhouse. And interestingly, James Brining and I have had a similar sort of career. I mean, he's much younger than me, uh, and he's only starting his career, or his career is emerging and doing wonderful things. But, um, but he, um, he was at Dundee, 
Uh, he was an assist, artistic director at Dundee. He was artistic director at TAG, the same company that I ran in Glasgow. And um, so we have a, a history together. We've kind of followed each other around and I've known him for a long time. So it was, again, a perfect place to come to to start work on this project. Can I uh, just ask you, before we have to finish, uh, um, you, I mean, I've, there's a quote about your work, particularly with the performance ensemble, which I, I read and have written down. The space it occupies the space between community, amateur and professional arts practice. And I've just read, you recommended a book by Francois Matarosso, a Restless Art, which you're mentioned in, actually, and the performance ensemble is mentioned. It's a really, really good book. I do recommend it for anybody who's interested in community arts or, or participatory arts. Do you think there's more of an acceptance now for that those sort of, uh, forms that kind of bleed those, those, those three areas together, community, professional, amateur? Most definitely, most definitely. And I, if you look at the new uh, strategy for the Arts Council of England, their let's create strategy for the next 10 years, you will see that community arts, participatory arts has made an incredible dent into the traditional ways of working uh, in the sort of um, slightly middle class, slightly high um, sort of... Um, exclusive um, theatre and made it and beginning to make theatre and the arts much more inclusive and now I think we're in our heyday you know I think that the community arts movement the participatory arts movement is one of the strongest um, um, uh, motors for um, the creation of a, of a of a more peaceful a more loving a more generous society um, and um, when we look at what politics is doing to the world and when we look at what the arts are doing to the world, all my hope is that the arts can make the difference where politicians aren't. Uh, because I think that we are beginning to be able to be um, more supportive, more inclusive, more generous, more um, uh, inspiring, more... Um, you know all those things. Um, then, uh, and I think it's recognised now. That's the main thing. It's recognised by um, bodies like the Arts Council that community arts is an important movement. Their whole community, uh, you know, creative people, creative places scheme that they ran for years. The whole way in which they're re um, uh, looking at the arts as being about um, involvement, about um, about relevance, about um, uh, people's right to be part of the cultural life of their communities is a really inspiring and important message that is coming through from them. And I think that the community arts movement has helped that to happen. And Francois Matarasso has been a leader in that work, you know, and as a, as a, as a, an observer and a writer of that work over, again, many, many years. I first worked with him in Newcastle uh, like 30 years ago and we're still working together. So it's really important, that longevity and, and the community arts movement's time has come. And it was presumably, uh, very briefly, I, mean, I presume then when you started doing this kind of thing uh, way back, there was some opposition to it, or, 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 or did you? Yeah, was, Definitely. was it? Yeah. Definitely, and 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 thought of a second class 
uh, art, you know, second-class citizenship. We were, we were, we were ignored, and uh, we were, you know, community arts and participatory arts always worked in terrible conditions. You know, the theatre space, the the plays that were being done in the main house were always uh, in the nice rehearsal rooms. The community arts movement was in drafty village halls and drafty community centres um, in in like outreach places that you know deserved to get much better uh, facilities than they did. Now I think things are changing. The facilities for people to create art in the community is much better. But at the time, it was atrocious. You know, you were, well, it's not important. It's not important. It's not worthy. It's not of interest to the public um, and, uh, and how wrong they were. Well, that's that's a good place to finish on that note of optimism and hope, and also a, a wonderful vision for, for 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 the purpose and role of the arts in a in the wider society. So, thanks, Alan. Thanks so much for talking to us today. A complete, and, a complete uh, pleasure. And we really look forward to what you're going to be doing with the performance on summer when we get back, when we can all meet again. And uh, we're looking forward to more collaboration with Chapel FM Arts Centre in our expanded building, hopefully next year. Uh, so yeah see you soon and keep well as they say thank you very much peter it's been a joy and forgive me for just rabbiting on for so much that's what you were asked to do there's nothing like a moonlit night clean shirt and whiskers and eyes that are bright Pius takes his heels to flight Out in the cornfield You'll see her again When the moon comes out Leave no doubt He held her by the factory wall Like a chainsaw at the thrill of it all, she sang by his Love the commas, love the apostrophes, love the colons and the question marks, love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, little, no, no, little. This is Radio Free Kinsley. today after reports of a tiger roaming the streets. After stretching, yawning and licking its bits, it entered a local cat flap and had a catnap on some catnip. 
The army were deployed to disperse a group of over 30 starlings panic pecking on the bird feeders this morning. There were ugly scenes as the mob descended, sending feathers and bird seed flying. A spokesman for the army, Major Incident, called for calm. There's more than enough food to go around. Please observe physical distancing and allow the more vulnerable to feed first, he said. Supplies have not been disrupted. The householder just got up late after spending the previous night listening to Czech psychedelia on YouTube. Environmental news now. And experts have warned that I could be in danger of a dandelion invasion if I don't get my arse into gear and remove them before they flower. Tulips are just starting to bloom and one hyacinth has appeared. Numbers are expected to increase over the coming days. UK borders have been strengthened as gardeners dig them over after winter, although the Department for the Environment have warned that it's still too early to plant petunias. In sport, and I won the gold medal for sprinting upstairs to the bathroom after eating a whole bag of licorice whilst browsing Czech psychedelia on YouTube till the early hours. There was astonishment in the kitchen last night as the goulash I made turned out to be surprisingly edible. As I ate it, I commented, hmm, not as disappointing as my usual attempts at cooking. And the weather. Another day of sunshine with light breezes. But tonight, just about half past ten, for the first time in history, it's going to start raining men. That's all from Kinsley for now. Have a very good afternoon. And now on Radio Free Kinsley, it's time for our weekly look at what the future holds from our resident medium, Pasha, as seen on the one show, Taylor. often ask me what the future holds so here's a few pointers for the year ahead in fashion trouser suits will be big news mini midi maxi as the adverts for richard shop says anything goes look out for a great new band from the wolverhampton area they're called slade and if you like loud stomping rock anthems you'll love them It'll be all change as pounds, shillings and pence make way for decimalised currency when Britain joins the common market. A lovely Catholic girl called Dana is my tip to win the Eurovision Song Contest for Ireland. The Vietnam War will continue and President Nixon will be renamed Tricky Dicky. He'll prove to be well dodgy. In the BBC Sports Personality of the Year, it'll be a close-run thing with Princess Anne vying for top spot with Spurs' Martin Chibbers, along with snooker beefcake Ray Reardon. It's the long and winding road for the Beatles as Paul will leave, signalling the end of the Fab Four. This is Radio Free Kinsley. Now it's time for the regional news with Nigella Cabbage. West Yorkshire Police say they made several arrests last night following a clash in South Kirby between local insurgent groups. A spokesman said the force were called when an illegal darts and domino fixture between the Frickley branch of the Al Nusra Front and South Kirby Boko Haram clashed in the car park of the Travellers before driving round the car park of the Health Centre in a 55-plate Nissan Navarro firing automatic weapons into the air. 
The incident took over an hour to bring under control, while rival factions threw sharpened dominoes and specially adapted beer mats at each other. A West Yorkshire police spokesman said that in the current COVID emergency, that darts and domino fixtures, along with meetings of tribal elders, are not classified as essential travel. In a moment, we'll be holding the government to account with a retired bus driver's wig, but for now, we'll be taking a short break. This month on Sky Sports, live and exclusive, we'll be speculating wildly here, live in the studio, about whether there'll ever be any football ever again and whether or not the players should take a pay cut so that we don't have to lose any money or lower our subscriptions. We'll also be discussing how the government can bail us out to the tune of, say, 400 million so we can pay our CEO his bonus. Then, at 11, we'll be showing some old 2020 cricket you can't remember, so it'll be just like watching it live. Dimmer viewers might even take up the betting on the flash on screen. Anyway, you won't care, because there'll be loads of wild slogging and fireworks. Then, at 3, Danny Baker presents the 70s best sliding tackles with Billy Bonds and Ron Chopper Harris, along with a confused alcoholic you can't believe used to be Trevor Francis. Then, from 7, we'll have golf, which always looks the same and might have a sedative effect while you finish that bottle of High Commissioner Whiskey. At various points, Ray Winston will encourage you to bet money you don't have, so long as you're enjoying it. Sky Sports, the only place to see old football, apart from YouTube and BT. And it's still only £36 a month. And now, on Radio Free Kinsley, it's time for Keith Kibble's Wobbly Wig of Wisdom. Keith Kibble's wig is a Kinsley tradition that goes back to the early 1970s when the village's best-known carpeted bus driver first graced the 197 to South Emsel. Though mocked at first by bewildered passengers, unable to comprehend the prominence of Keith's Hessian underlay, locals have come to trust the great and unmatched wisdom of its mystical pronouncements, since it correctly predicted the outcome of the 1973 Eurovision Song Contest. Put simply, you ask it a simple yes or no question, and if it wobbles, the answer's yes. It's no good asking Keith himself. He knows now, apart from the aggressive tone in the question, what am I supposed to do with that when offered more than 10p over the exact fare? So, let's get straight over to Keith's house via his son's WhatsApp and ask, Kibble's wig? What's big? Thank you. There's a large crowd building here as we anticipate the decision from Keith Kibble's wobbly wig of wisdom. So, first up, we're showing Keith Wigg the tweet from Nadine Doris where she claims that Old Street was out in tears clapping for Boris Johnson, a claim only slightly undermined by the appearance of a word-for-word identical tweet from a now-deleted account from someone else called Keith, prompting accusations that Downing Street was making stuff up again. So, Keith Wigg, is Nadine telling the truth? I'm looking at the wig. I can see trees waving in the background, suggesting a fairly stiff breeze. But it appears that Keith's syrup is... Yes, it's completely unmoved. So, there we have it, listeners. Keith Kibble's wobbly wig of wisdom thinks Nadine's telling Porky's. Come back later and we'll confront Keith's insightful Irish with more hysterical virus bullshit in the absence of proper facts and figures. Well, listeners, I think that's enough excitement for now from Radio Free Kinsley. 
We're going to end, as we always do, with the epilogue, read by our resident clairvoyant, Pasha Taylor. You will be able to stay home, brothers and sisters. You will be able to turn on, tune in and cop out. You will be able to lose yourself in several bottles of Wicked and sneak out during commercials because the revolution will be televised. The revolution will be sponsored by British Gas and brought to you in two feature-length episodes. The revolution will show you pictures of Anne Widdicombe on an exercise bike and Boris Johnson playing rocking all over the world with status quo on children in need. The revolution will be brought to you by Ray Galton and Alan Simpson's Playhouse and will star Siran Jones and Aidan Turner or Benedict Cumberbatch and Brenda Blething. The revolution will make your teeth whiter. The revolution will kill 99% of all known germs. The revolution will make you look thinner and taller because the revolution will be televised. There will be pictures of Posh Spice wheeling a pushchair down Oxford Street and the Duke and Duchess of Sussex trying to slide a stolen colour TV into a waiting limousine. Claire Baldwin will be able to predict the winner of the 3.15. The revolution will be televised. There will be pictures of the filth pushing over protesters on instant replay. There will be pictures of the filth pushing over protesters on instant replay. There will be pictures of Jamie Oliver being run out of Soho with a new haircut. There will be slow motion and still life of Robbie Williams strolling through St James's Park in a rainbow-coloured liberation jumpsuit. He has been saving for just the proper occasion. EastEnders and Coronation Street will no longer seem so damn relevant and women will not care whether Poldark gets his shirt off because the working classes will be on the streets looking for a brighter tomorrow because the revolution will be televised. There will be highlights on the evening news and pictures of Orla Gerin interviewing passers-by and pictures of Fiona Bruce putting on a brave face. The theme song will be written by Tony or John Barry and will be sung by Jackie Trent, Anita Dobson, Captain Sensible, Dennis Waterman or Will Young because the revolution will be televised. The revolution will be right back after a news flash about floods, droughts or Kim Kardashian. You will not have to worry about the mad woman in your attic, the skeleton in your cupboard or the 1980s power suit in your wardrobe. The revolution will go better with Elman's mayonnaise. The revolution will fight the germs that cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the passenger seat. The revolution will be televised, will be televised, will be televised. There will be a rerun, brothers and sisters, although the revolution will be live on BBC News 24 and available to own on DVD by Christmas. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, the revolution is now. Love the control. Love the command. Love the spacebar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM.
So we're talking today to Fiona Gell of the Leeds Library, but also uh, the Leeds Lit Fest, which happened now very in the, the very distant past. Hello, Fiona. Hello, Peter. Nice to talk to you. Yes, it nice does to seem. Talk to you. Yeah, it does seem a while ago since uh, since Leeds Lit Fest. Although actually, it was only about five weeks ago. I think it finished. I know it's unbelievable, isn't it? So much has happened in those five weeks that it really does seem like much longer. Uh, it certainly feels like much longer for everybody. I think so. Um, yeah. yeah, strange times. Indeed, but um, looking back on Leeds Lit Fest, uh, because um, Leeds Lit Fest has been uh, nominated for an award and we'll find out about that very soon but um tell us a, a bit about the background to the festival fiona in terms of the kind of the vision for leeds lit fest this was the second one so what was the vision for leeds lit fest from, from the from the from the outset yeah so um this is our second year um we uh came together as a partnership in uh, 20, end of 2018, and then we had our first festival in 2019. Um, and it brought together various literature, arts organisations within the city to combine to produce uh, a, a lit fest for Leeds uh, for the first time. Uh, it's never really been done before on the scale uh, and with the sort of partnership involvement that we brought together. Uh, I've been in, living in Leeds since the 80s and it's always astounded me that, we, you know, the city had never had a lit fest given the size of the city and also every other comparable city in the country has one and much, much smaller. So, you know, it, it was it was a no brainer, really. And I think for several years, the sort of partners involved have all been working towards in their own way, trying to construct a sort of literature focal point for the city going forward and you know finally we managed that last year amazingly we got nominated in our first year um, for a saboteur award which is uh, the award that we've been nominated for again this year uh, and um, it, it, it's extraordinary and we're so grateful to everybody that that nominated us because it's a people's vote you know we, we can't nominate ourselves or you know it, it, it comes from the audience members any any individual person could have voted for us to appear on the shortlist and they did it was just incredible fantastic. so yes yeah it was, it was fantastic but it is the lit fest is about bringing something together for the people of leeds in particular the region in general and you know we have um, ambition and vision for um to make to make it you know one of the best in the uk but really you know we are very conscious of our local writers and poets and performers and we want to support them and you know a lit fest is a brilliant focal point once a year for doing that mm, and what what is that partnership you're talking about partnership between different arts organizations literature organizations yeah so there's 10 uh, 10 organizations uh, came together so the principal partner was the leeds library um as you mentioned i i work for them anyway um but uh, i also uh, run something called the Leeds Big Bookend and Northern Short Story Festival. So I'm a partner in my own right, as well as being an employee of the Leeds Library. The Leeds Library is a principal partner and then Leeds Libraries through um, the local authority, um, in particular Central Library, Carriageworks Theatre, Chapel FM, uh, 
which you might know something about, Peter. Um, <laughs> Headingley Lit First, Hyde Park Book Club, Leeds Church Institute, Strix and uh, Millim Jewish Book Festival. So w- all those people, partnership, uh, came together to form Leeds Lit Fest Partnership. Um, and that's been sort of going pretty strong now for the last two years. Uh, and it, it kind of, it brings diversity and it brings uh, a very different kind of view to traditional book festivals, I think, um, just because it's so eclectic in its makeup, yet very strong in its expertise, um, because all the, the, the organisations I've just listed do their own events, programmes to do with literature all throughout the year anyway, and have their their very specific specialisms and expertise that they bring to the table, which is fantastic. So some people might say, well, is that a literature festival? If it's just people coming together and badging everything they do anyway as Leeds Lit Fest, is that really a festival? Uh, well, I, I think it's definitely a festival and it, it is, it's not about badging things that they would do anyway because there was a lot created for the festival um, uniquely uh, and to, to bring it and to make it to make it a festival. Um, so there was lots of different elements throughout the programme um, that were specific to the festival. For example, there was a whole area called, uh, to do with uh, Leeds-inspired funding uh, that took the Lit Fest into the community. And so uh, you could perhaps go and see Chris Nixon in Farsley or Francis Brody up at Moralton. Uh, you could listen to a podcast from James Nash talking about the um, tiled hall, uh, so that it, it was very, um, very important to us that we could do that, um, and it, it was specifically commissioned for the festival. That whole Leeds-inspired strand, uh, and it went down absolutely brilliantly. And I think, I think audience members appreciated that they didn't have to come into the centre of the town, but we took um, the lip fest to their doorsteps. Uh, we also gave them a whole series of writing workshops. So if they you know, were interested in kind of honing their skills and things, they could go with a top class writer like Claire Fisher or Michael Stewart uh, and, you know, get some great advice and then take it away and be inspired to, to write their own things. So that was specially that whole area was specially commissioned for the festival. So and, um, and it was very, you know, very appropriate, I think. And, and where did the events take place um uh in leeds because i know that was an important part of the festival's vision yeah uh, it was it was really important to use the buildings iconic buildings in leeds uh it, for example we had events the partner some of the partner venues uh like the carriageworks theater that's an iconic building sits on millennium square the leeds library on commercial street been been on that spot since 1808 Leeds libraries, Central Library in particular, but also the outlier libraries were very important to us. Central Library had a full day's uh, well, weekend, really, festival for children. So it was making use of iconic buildings within Leeds. So it wasn't just a tent in a field, um, which are great, but actually we wanted that character of the centre of Leeds, the, the buildings of Leeds, the character of Leeds to really shine through. And I, th- I think we, we really did achieve that. And also when we took the Leeds Inspired programme out, out into the different areas, we used theatres and um, sports and social centres and libraries just to sort of get that community feel going as well. So I, I think the buildings were very important to us and it was a big part of the thinking. 
Great. And um, so looking back over over the festival this year, the second festival, second Leeds Lit Fest, um, anything, any highlights that you remember, any high spots for you? Well, I mean, there were so many. It's really, really difficult. And I, I feel awful for having, you know, to sort of say, well, these were my highlights because I loved it all. I, I think I... Apart from being, you know, heavily involved in in the programming and and the organisation of it all, I think I, I managed to sort of do about five events a day. <laughs> so I was like running from one event to another. So I did see quite a lot. I think one of my favourite things was the Leeds Lit Adventure Walk. Again, a specially commissioned piece for the festival, and it. Um, took you on a walk around the iconic buildings of Leeds and there were um, theatrical performances or readings or poetry at various stops um, throughout the city. Uh, And that was hugely well received and um, was great fun to do and it brought actors and performers to the city as well. And uh, yeah, I think everybody that that took part in that thoroughly enjoyed it, which I I did too. I, I went on it a couple of times um so uh yeah it was just amazing um the other thing that i have to say i'm a massive fan of helen fielding so on our last day of the festival um she kind of uh was the sort of highlight of the day because it was international women's day uh on the on that sunday as well and it was amazing to um hear and meet an author who uh i you know was a great fan of her bridget jones diaries um books you know, multi-million selling, internationally renowned author who is from Leeds as well, um, was in the Carriageworth Theatre and just totally down-to-earth, normal, lovely person, you know, and sharing all her stories and anecdotes with us. That was absolutely fantastic. Um, the other things that I uh, I enjoyed also, we had an international writer-in-residence with us, Diane Cook from the USA, and it was lovely to take Diane around to various events, be with her, talk talk to her uh, about um, her experiences at the festival and then she also did an event which was um, to do she she presented a manifesto to the festival so like a document for us to take going forward to look at things we could do better uh, incorporate more things her take uh, as a an international person coming to the festival for the, for the first time for her um, it was all really, really interesting, and I hope we can use her work to inform us going forward. You know, it was absolutely fantastic. Well, talking talking about going forward, I mean, obviously, at the moment, it's very hard to, to talk about anything with any degree of certainty. But, um, yeah, but is, um, I mean, what is the vision for the future of Leeds Lit Fest? Well, again, uh, it, it's hard to know what will happen next year. Um if we weren't in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic, then I would be saying to you, yes, of course, we'll be going for it again in some version, whether it would be as big, I don't know, um, because we kind of tripled in size almost from 2019 to this year. And we got lots of funding from, uh, we've got funding from the Arts Council, from Leeds Inspired and British Council. Um, Obviously things have changed massively in the last two months and, um, of it, you know, as as all arts organisations are finding, we don't know where the future will take us. Uh, the intent would always be to try and do something for next year because, of, you know, our writers and performers and artists, they need support. And we very much see the festival as doing that. So 
some something would be great, but I honestly can't tell you how that would look at the moment. We do want to carry on and um, you know continue with the festival, but I think you know it, it could be quite different to what we experienced this year. Um, yeah. You know, we might have more online uh, uh, events. Uh, it, it probably would be smaller, um, but we have ambition to to carry on. That's for sure. Great. Well, that's really good news and, and nice to hear. Finally, Fiona, tell us about the Saboteur Award. How, how can we vote for Leeds Lit Fest and how long uh, have we got? Well, uh, right. So the Saboteur Awards um, have been going for several years now and they spotlight a sort of diverse range of literary publications, events and writers on the UK indie literature scene. Um, and the, award, the awards are voted for by the public and they are much prized and sought after by the writing community. And, you know, obviously that includes us as a festival. So it's very, it's an amazing thing to win uh, if, if you do. Uh, and for us to be shortlisted twice is fantastic. So the closing date to vote is the 13th of May. Our category is Best Literary Festival. Um, so uh, if you would very kindly like to vote for us in that festival that would be amazing um, and what you have to do is there's a form that you fill in if you there are several ways it, it, the, this form is a, <clears throat> excuse me it's appearing all over the place but if you go on to the Leeds Lit Fest website so that's www.leedslitfest.co.uk on our home page there's a big news section and on that news section, it says Leeds Lit Fest shortlisted for Best Literary Festival. So if you go into that article, the link is there because it's a form that you have to fill in. So I can't really give you the, the form address over the um, the airwaves because it's uh, quite long and it, you, you, know, you probably would, yeah, you wouldn't write it down very quickly. So, um, yeah, so that's there. Or you can go the other way to do it is to go on to uh, the sabotagereviews.com website. Uh, and all the information is there. So that's www.sabotagereviews.com. And it's the Sabotage Reviews people that run the Saboteur Awards. Fantastic. Thanks ever so much, Fiona. And yes, if if you were, uh, if you uh, if you did go to anything in the Leeds Lip Fest or you just want to support the Leeds Lip Fest. Yeah, support Leeds Lip Fest. Then, then that's the place to do it. And, and you know, it, they do count uh, those votes. And it's a, it is a really, really prestigious award within the writing community. It means a great deal. And will we'll mean a great deal to all the people who work so hard to make the festival happen, the partners uh, worked very hard, but we also, as a, as one of the partners ourselves, Chapel FM, we worked hard, but we really, really enjoyed being part of it. So, um, and so, if you are an audience member or you had anything to do with it, do go out and vote. You've got a little time left. And um, thanks ever so much, Fiona, for, for for coming on and talking to us. And we really look forward to the next Leeds Slip Fest, wherever, whenever it is, and in whatever form it is. It'll be wonderful to have it back uh, and to have our literary life back in Leeds. Although I know people are doing online. It's not quite the same thing, is it? But um, no, thank you. I, know, I know what you mean, Peter. I think, um, you know, it, it would be fantastic for us all to meet again in person, one-to-ones and groups and stuff. It would be amazing. Um, but uh, I'd just like to say a big shout out to our volunteers for the festival as well, because, you know, we're all volunteering in various capacities for the festival, but, you know, they made it really... You know, they were the face of the festival and, and it was absolutely brilliant. And actually, if we won the award, it would be um, very much down to them, uh, you know, absolutely. Uh, 
for making that happen really so thank were, you very much yeah there were a fleet of volunteers and they, oh, and they were they were fantastic they were yeah. fantastic peter so you know we're hugely grateful to them and you know it it's an award for them you know as much as for the festival partners and and all the, the audiences as well so you know it's really gratefully received thank you fiona and uh, look forward to, to speaking to you again sometime soon thank you very much peter bye-bye bye-bye Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. Welcome to Leeds Lit Fest 2020. The podcast you're about to hear was made by Chapel FM, commissioned by Leeds Litfest and funded by Leeds Inspired, part of Leeds City Council. Each writer profile was recorded on location in an environment in or around the city of Leeds, chosen by the writer. All events in Leeds Litfest 2020, March 4th to the 8th, can be booked at www.leedslitfest.co.uk. Take a second left past the stall which sells happiness. Six in a box. Don't break them. Turn right. And at the place which sells nail varnish in all shades of glory and distress, cut past an installation of shopping trolleys, designs borrowed from Burberry and Dali, and adjacent to the butchers selling cut-price second chances. Roll up, roll up, get them before they're gone. There's a market stall where you can sit in. Here, a man cooks 10 things made from rose water and vows, journeys and longing, love and a father's blessing for a daughter's hand in marriage. Here, his wife presses her left hand to the flesh of the dough to flatten its indecisions into neat circles, which smell of home, which she pulls then from the oven. Look for a woman who could be you. She barely looks up above a table of books. She is sat writing down thoughts, translating loss into words through the medium of purple ink. Coming here is a ritual, a reason for rising from bad dreams, a reason for catching the number 16 to sit down at this table and be fed the bread from the fire, the vow of a mother, the scent of rose water, the salt of the journey, the love and the longing and a father's blessing for a daughter's hand in marriage. And each time the man crosses her border of grief, he brings with him a small glass of Turkish coffee grown from white blossom thought and red cherry fruit. And he leaves it at the table's edge, along with sugar, just to remind her for this third podcast in the series we're with Romy Smith hello Romy good afternoon and um, we're in one of your favorite places a place where you spend a lot of time and we're about to go in there now you might get a clue already 
from what you hear. But Romy, tell us where we are. We, as you look at it from uh, the street facing, we are at the right-hand side entrance of Kirkgate Market, and we're at the entrance where Timpsons is and Malcolm Michaels Butchers, and we're going to visit a stall that's very special to me and a stall that definitely is part of my sense of what Leeds is as a place but also typifies just some of the richness of the city and something of um, what is dear to me most as a writer which is that the city is mapped in narratives we orientate we orientate ourselves via narrative we are still I think that the market is a really important location for so many people but I think I would argue the city's creatives. I mean, it's really hard to make a living as a creative and to do what you're passionate about. And I think the market becomes a resource, a way to, for us to be able to live economically within this city. And for me, it's a place that makes my life possible as a creative, but it's also a place, as I say, that speaks to me and sings to me because it's about stories, the exchange of stories, those voices, that call and response, um, those narratives, the banter, the bar, the kind of sense of ritual and routine of coming here all of that is you know it's richness in terms of the creative mind I'd grown up on markets the banter the sense of the sound the sense of the electricity I've always thought that markets are like theatre and I think Leeds market is no exception to that you walk sonically past any stretch of this market you will hear um, fragments of conversation that suggest bigger stories that are beyond this space they are stories of everyday mundanity they're stories of grief there's stories of loss. There's all sorts of things that you will overhear if you eavesdrop in this market. If you look above us, you sort of see the framework and architecture, a series of suspended glass night lights, an ornate green and burgundy and gold um, ironwork that sort of forms the ceiling. It's full of light. I think many people probably don't take or get the time because they're so busy dashing from one place to another to take time to stop and look up but it is amazing how much light this building lets in when you look and all these kind of pathways and gangways that are above us that sort of lead to who knows where they're not places that I have been or seen so there's a sense of the down here and then the up there the sort of gods bit if you kind of continue the theatre um, metaphor that, that we don't really see or experience but in a way us walking through we're the people on stage we're the performers if you like so let's head down to your place can I get the chicken shawarma with salad and the bread and could I have a half cheese half satay probably started to come here in late 2012 um, 2013 it was just after I lost my mother and uh, I was feeling you know my mother one of the loves of my life and um, to lose her uh, was just a kind of incredible turbulent incredibly turbulent time and so I needed to find a way through that process of finding new rituals 
new ways of markers on a day-to-day -day of doing things. I think that's one of the things that sort of grief requires, I think, is a, to, to find new ways that kind of give days meaning. And so my ritual became coming here every day for lunch. It was one of those things that I began to do. And there's a beautiful story, Hassan, who runs the store with his wife, Manise. We had not had a conversation at that point, but I was coming here every day and without saying anything, he started to pour a small cup of Turkish coffee and push it by my elbow and then walk off. And he began to do that every time I visited. And I began to see that as a wonderful metaphor for something. It was somebody reminding me. He would also, even though I don't take sugar, he would also push a bowl of sugar. So there was a, somebody reminding me of sweetness in the world, but also somebody reminding me of generosity. Those small acts that are beyond language, they're beyond even having had a conversation. There's something in the non-verbal there. And I have talked to him about it since. Um, about back in 2016, I created a piece for Compass Live Art, which I performed here. Um, the title for the piece is interesting because I can't actually say what the title is. It's actually the coordinate for this part of the market. So that was its title. But that says everything was actually in a moment of turbulence. And I always go to poems like Caroline Duffy's Prayer. Prayer by Caroline Duffy. Some days, although we cannot pray, a prayer utters itself. So a woman will lift her head from the sieve of her hands and stare at the minims sung by a tree, a sudden gift. Some nights, although we are faithless, the truth enters our hearts, that small, familiar pain. Then a man will stand stock still, hearing his youth in the distant Latin chanting of a train. Pray for us now. Grade one piano scales console the lodger looking out across a Midlands town. Then dusk, and someone calls a child's name as though they named their loss. Darkness outside. Inside, the radio's prayer. Rockall, Malin, Dogger, Finisterre. And it's a fascinating thing to think about that line, that final line being connected to something that goes out at those times to get orientate ships home so that they get home safely. But it's always occurred to me that anyone who's listening to the shipping forecast go out is also being guided home in the quietness of the world when the world's sound is turned down actually what you have is a voice that's speaking to you through those dark hours and so it's why thanks so much thank you very much thank you so just for the tape i have had my wonderful zatar and cheese bread delivered 
So that was the reason for why I chose the title of that piece as the coordinates for this place, because it's about being at sea and finding the places in life that locate you, where you feel a sense of location, where you feel a sense of place. Actually, what was really easy about this place at the time was I didn't need to explain anything. I just could come here and sit and I read and I wrote and we were having a conversation but through this small ritual and um, I found it deeply moving and it became a really important part of processing my grief at the time and that's what the piece that I performed for Company of Slive Art back in 2016, fall 2016 was all about, was about engaging people to have conversations in the way that we had a kind of growing conversation. Everybody was served Turkish coffee, everybody had some food together, we broke bread together, and we ended up sharing grief stories, so that's what the piece became about. So, that's why this stool's important. It's also situated, as you say, on a kind of crossroads, on a corner. It was a great place for, for watching as well, for looking out. It's, it looked a, a bit like a lighthouse in a way. It's a great place for observation, traffic, watching the world go by it's kind of this corner as you're right i often sit here on this bit facing out towards spice corner which is the wonderful stall that sells every type of caribbean spice i think you could lay your hands on as well as green bananas and yams and coconuts everything and in a way as a writer here is a great place to be absorbed into the market but also be slightly removed from it in a way and that from that vantage point you observe all these stories and people this kind of sense of traffic the traffic of lives moving past this this place Romy you're about to um to read us something from Rebecca Solnit yeah, this is from her book, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, which was published in 2006 by Penguin. Page five it says, Certainly for artists of all stripes, the unknown, the idea or the form or the tale that has not yet arrived is what must be found. It is the job of artists to open doors and invite in prophecies, the unknown, the unfamiliar. It's where their work comes from. And um, whilst the market is a site of familiarity through ritual, it's also a site of the unknown because it's unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know who's going to pass. It's not the same lineup of cast of people that pass you each time you come here. So it is all about unfamiliarity. It's all about being in the moment. In a way, if you were to compare it to performance and draw out that theatre metaphor, the market is a kind of site of improvisation. It's sort of lots of different stories, lots of different happenings. There might be one day something that's kicking off at a stall. Then one moment you might encounter someone and have a conversation with them that you didn't intend to. You might meet somebody that you didn't intend to meet who you haven't seen for a while. I mean, the amount of times on that corner, by the way, I have met people who I have not seen for a while, but I've thought about, and we will stop and we will have a conversation. So that idea of that, that Solness is expressing of the unknown and opening a door in a way, that's what that stall symbolises. It was a way, a time of acute grief for me to kind of come and open a door. There's a poem called Open the Door and um, that asks you to open the door and even if there's nothing there, there might be a draft. And I think I see that market stall as that, is that sense of an opening a door at a time when things, lots of things felt closed. 
And also market is a place of exchange, and so I suppose the opening of a door you go in and you come out. But it, but it sounds like the project that you that you did there, the Greece stories, was an exchange of stories in a way. And uh, you, tell us about some of the questions you asked people. Yeah, so, um, well, they asked me the questions and there were six preset questions. We didn't know what order they were going to go in. So it was a kind of improvisation, a sort of controlled improvisation. And by the rolling of a die, um, would decide which order those questions came in. And one of the questions was, if you compared this market stall to a song, what would it be and why? And I took that then as an opportunity to play Nina Simone's I Think It's Gonna Rain Today. Really beautiful song. And it has that line in it, human kindness is overflowing and I think it's gonna rain today. And that's sings in me in terms of that generosity, that kindness, the small cup of coffee, accompanied with sweetness and those reminders in that moment of great sorrow for me of 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 goodness in the world of connection of um, small acts of compassion not big grand gestures but just small acts of sustenance and the ways in which that those kind of things enable people to endure Broken windows in empty hallways A pale dead moon in a sky streaked with grey Human kindness is overflowing And I think it's gonna rain today I mentioned a bit earlier that Chapel FM is going to be yondering for a while and we're going to be down here, um, which is over yonder for us from Chapel FM. Are there places that for you are yonder, places that you would like to explore, actual physical places or places within your writing that you are on the brink of, of entering or exploring? Well, I don't feel pigeonholed as a writer, although... Poetry is my, my compass, if you like. It's the main thing. It's my sensibility. It's how I occupy the world. It's that sense of striving to make a line as rich and as visual as I can. It's about image, 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 really, within the poem, and to really imbue uh, a poetic line with music and to be aware of its music and its shape and its structure and its body and the dance of the lines. I think that I write in lots of different genres. So I am writing at the moment libretto. And I'm writing, well, in fact, leader. It's for the soprano Carolyn Sampson. It's a commission from the great baritone and composer Roderick Williams. It's a response to Beethoven's To My Love Afar Off and an engagement with that narrative, which is one in which we just hear the male voice so I'm looking as I do in a lot of my work at the missing voices at the absent and so I'm interested there in the missing female voice and her reply back so I'm writing a, a six uh, what's a what I'm calling a, a short story in six songs and that will be for performance at the Australian Festival of Chamber Music in July 2020, so July of this year. Place is also very important in terms of other things. I mean, I just think, as a so I've 
I'm a poet, a playwright, a performer. I write libretto or leader. Um, I collaborate with dancers. I collaborate a lot with musicians. Anybody who's seen me perform understands that, that I'm a musician, but my text or my instrument is words and my instrument is my voice. I partly sing, partly speak work. I write um, extensively both in my scholarly work, but also in my creative work about jazz and blues music. I'm fascinated by those genres. I'm fascinated by the history of that music and the politics of that music and um, the protagonists within that who... Um, you know, for me and my own scholarly work are um, women singers. I'm, that's what I'm fascinated by and I, I, I explore. But I also think about the residences that I've had, which going back to your point about place have allowed me access to places I couldn't have imagined I would be able to access. So I am historically the inaugural parliamentary writer in residence. I worked in the Houses of Parliament for a year and a half between two, well, 2007 and into 2008, connected with a major exhibition in Westminster Hall. That meant that I was able to access archive spaces that I wouldn't have been able to without that residency. I performed on the steps of Westminster Hall to a capacity crowd that included my mother, and I was incredibly proud that she was there, my mother who left school without any qualifications and had left school by the time she was 15 and who was written off and sent to secondary modern, etc., was there watching me take that space, and that was really important. Access for me is not just about a physical space it's about access to intellectual spaces access to cerebral spaces it's about travel you know um, Brodsky talks about uh, poetry being the song of the nomad prose is the farmer who stays and I think I'm a nomad I move I come from you know a father who fled the Biafran war I um, come from people who have moved who have traveled who've had to move and I think that that there, that idea of the poetry being the song of the nomad is something that, that, that sings in me. A lot of my work takes me to other places. So my sense of place, yes, Leeds is my home. It's the city I live in. It's the city I've chosen for the last 25 years. Um, I'm a Londoner and London is also my home. As much as in many ways creatively, um, in terms of inspiration, New York is my home. Also, I have friends there who I love. And, but as a city, it's a city in which I feel strongly a sense that I make sense. My mixedness, my mixed heritageness makes sense there. My, um, my creativity makes sense there. So place means different things. And it isn't just one static place. And it certainly isn't the place that I live and I would say that that then applies to the creative work. I don't feel I just have one home. Home for me as a creative is about the project. It's about the encounter. I could meet a filmmaker and therefore I could decide within that moment, yes, we're going to collaborate. And the encounter will decide the form that that collaboration takes. So... I love that. I don't have a static mode of working. And part of me doing my PhD, which I'm currently writing up, was about breaking apart who I am creatively. And, you know, I write lectures that are part poem, 
is this a poem, is this a lecture? My lectures are set to double bass and piano. So they're constantly challenging the notion of, ah, oh, that's an essay. No, it's not. I write essays. I have one that was published last year, in August last year, by New York University Press in a beautiful book called Imagining Queer Methods, which is all about how we teach queer theory. And my essay takes the form of a script, so it's a multi-voice script, but it's an essay. Different people within the educational space will perform that, and that essay is scored with original composition by Jenny Malloy, the double bassist and composer. And it's not only an intertextual reference to the voice, and particularly a book called Souls of Black Folk, which is a series of scored essays, it's also a reference to this idea of the kind of multimodal nature of the way that I like to work. As a creative, I have homes in lots of places. It's not one static place. And I think that's the beauty of life, is to feel at home in different spaces. This is the second year of Leeds Lit Fest. It's great. I mean, People Tree is my publisher. That's fantastic to see them as part of the launch program, which is on Wednesday the 5th of February. Fantastic. And people like Roger Robinson, who's just won the T.S. Eliot Prize, will be performing that night. The biggest prize that there is in terms of poetry in this country. And Roger has won that. And he's with People Tree, which is the biggest distributor of Caribbean fiction and poetry anywhere in the world. And it has what might appear to be a small base physical base in Burley in Leeds but its reach is global and that's a really interesting metaphor for not only People Tree as a publisher it's global reach but I think for Leeds and there's kind of an ambition a sort of way in which the city has a global reach so yeah that's one of the things that I'm very much looking forward to to being at. The podcast you've just heard was made by Chapel FM commissioned by Leeds Litfest and funded by Leeds Inspired conversation usually is just between I guess however many people you like and it just keeps going on and on there's probably a subject and it just keeps growing and growing until I don't know until someone changes the subject or until ends. back and forth communication between people Talk to someone about a certain subject, and it doesn't have to be just words, you can do it through different languages or just not even talking at all. Talking and listening. Exchanging ideas. Um, a friend who listens to me is um, my friend, she's called Paula. We talk anywhere at school. Um, we have a lot of inside jokes and bad puns. Um, I call, I give her a nickname and I call her Bear because polar bear and she's a polar bear. And um, we talk a lot about our problems and thoughts and we have a lot of lessons together. Um, I also have another friend called Azair. I've been friends with him since year two. And well, because I've been around him longer and more comfortable around him and we usually talk about anything like primary school or memories and stuff because yeah (laughs) 
The person that listens to me is my mate, well, I think. We have known each other since primary and we were in the same class and I can trust her and we talk about whatever comes to mind. The person who listens to me is my best friend. We both listen to each other. She always knows what to say and is always helpful and supportive. She listens because she trusts me, I think, and I think she's interested in me. I trust her to say anything. My friend Ethan listens to me over Snapchat and phone calls because we don't go to the same school. Um, he's always so supportive with anything I tell him and he helps me with all my problems and I try to do the same for him as best as I can. I can talk to him about anything because I trust him and he trusts me and we have one special inside joke which is just twerk. Conversations that aren't conversations are rather just like being like just pouted with words from the other person or just getting just really like I don't know how to describe it. It's like it's like a wall between you and the person. You are trying to start a conversation, but they're just completely blocking you off and just kind of ignoring you, but not really. And while there's also the other kind, which is just both people talking over each other. They're not listening to each other at all. They're just <laughs> blasting their thoughts all over the place. It's not a conversation because you're not really listening to what other people are saying. You're just keeping going. You're not stopping. You don't listen at all to anyone. You just think what's in your head and you just say it. It can. It's not even that he has a conversation. It'll be... If he doesn't have a conversation, then he's arguing with someone. If he's not arguing with someone, he's shouting at someone. And if he's not shouting at someone, he's having a fight because he's, he doesn't know how to control it. Well, a conversation I'd usually have with the person that I know, well, I'd start off with maybe a question because sometimes I feel like talking to people. So I'm like, hey, how are you today? They'd be like, I'm okay. <laughs> and then, I don't know, I'd try and carry on. What lesson do you have next? And they're like well, probably English or something. And well, because those are kind of mundane subjects, I don't think anyone would like to talk about them. I'd probably ask them, well, are you a cat or dog person? I'm a cat person. They're really cute and small and fluffy. They're like dogs. <laughs> I'm like, oh, dogs are nice too. They're quite fluffy, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> so like with me, I repeat myself. So like, like I'm doing now, I repeat <laughs> I repeat myself so it's not like I'm meaning to, I just, I want to get my point across. It's like I repeat and I repeat and I repeat. When someone just keeps on like talking and talking to you and they just don't stop and don't let you have your opinion and then like when they finish, I like guess when they finish and then I just like say something and like I'm lucky and it's just like, it's about what they've been talking about. So my friend will be like, oh, my sister's being proper annoying. And then I'll be like, so what did she do now? And then she'll start talking. And then because it just drags on, I just zone out and then like act like I'm listening. So like still try and make eye contact and stuff. And then when she's finished, I'll just like say something and then it'll sound like I have been listening. They'd be like, hey, have you heard of this video editing app? It's so great and easy to use. My file isn't loading her away. What am I going to do? 
How do you make a file smaller? I'll Google it. Oh wow, it's something about an 825. How am I going to submit such a big video? Ah, hmm, there's something about compressing. I'll try it, it seems promising. Wait, the video is not showing up in a folder. Oh my god, I spent ages on that. Ah, I found it, crisis averted. So, what do you think of it? And I just... Hmm. Everybody has some sort of voice, whether it's like a positive voice, a negative voice, or a voice just like telling them that they need to do something. Like everyone has a voice. Well, my voices say lots of different things. You get some people have lots of different voices. Like some people might just have two different ones, like a, like essentially an angel and a devil. But then like like me, I have more voices telling different things and. Like two, there's like a negative association with it, and there's a positive. The negative is like it makes you want to cry, doubt yourself, and that. And then the positive is stepping into, stepping in when you need it. So like, if if you want in, if you like, you think, oh, I want to get into a, in, I want to get into an argument, and it's like, no, don't get into the argument because then you're gonna get into trouble, and that's like your positive association with association with it. Well, I think as a teenager growing up, they were very very negative. Um, and the the sort of anxiety side of stuff was, I think, for myself, was definitely driven by that lack of um, confidence and you know that sense that that you're you're putting yourself down more than anything. Um, now more so, I, I sort of enjoy the kind of conversations that I end up ha- having with myself. You know that I can sort of manipulate it a bit more and it and have some purpose out of it, where it's more about finding out stuff rather than it being personal and putting it down. It, it's more questioning of what I'm doing or what people around me are doing, how I'm spending my time, that sort of thing. When you doubt yourself, and then like you want to, you're like, do I do this or do I not do it? Like, I do it a lot as I'm an only child. And it's like, it's like you want to do, it's like, what do you do? What do, what shall I do? What shall I do? And it's like, what do I do? Um, I like to think that each conversation has certain roles in there. Like maybe there's a person who starts it and another person who ends it. Maybe there's like people who contribute to the conversation a lot. They're like the loudest. And then there's like the quiet people who just listen and then occasionally talk about something. And then there's the people who make jokes or, I don't know, there's a lot of roles and conversations. A good friend is her, listens, supports, comforts. A good friend is him. Helps, loves, cares. A good friend is them. Makes you laugh, pushes you, makes you leap boundaries, annoys you, but in a good way. A good friend is you. Love the commas, love the apostrophes, love the colons and the question marks, love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, little, no, no, little, pyramid.
You're listening to Wordy Birds. Wordy Birds is our regular spot for stories and poetry. Writers, poets, scribblers, wordy birds from Yorkshire and beyond. Give us what they've got. In today's Wordy Birds, we have a new song by Hugh Nankerville. This is a very beautiful song. It's called A Song for Mary or A Musical Hug. He wrote this quite early on in the corona crisis, just as lockdown was beginning to happen. And it's a, it's a song for everybody who wants to give somebody a hug somewhere, but is unable to do so at the moment. So thank you, Hugh Nankerville, to that very beautiful song, A Song for Mary. Now the next piece, not by uh, any design, or perhaps it is, is called Mary Mary. And it's by 
Irene Lofthouse. Irene is a poet and storyteller, story writer from Bradford. Irene Lofthouse. Mary Mary by Irene Lofthouse. I were gobsmacked when a reporter from that show, you know that one, where are they now, came to interview Mam about gardens. We lived eight floors up, surrounded by concrete paths, parking bays, high-rises and scraps of yellowing grass. Go away, Mam shouted from open balcony door. I could see tears trickling down her face. I didn't know why she were crying, and I went to Wugger. You were famous. Our viewers want to know why. Reporter's loud voice floated up, causing Mam to storm onto the balcony. Leave me alone. And then she clambered onto the balcony railing, sobbing and swaying. Well, he skedaddled, didn't he? Leaving me to talk Mum down. It's okay, Mam, I said. Hugging her, a tear dropping on my head as she stroked my hair. Well, she told me that when she were eight, she were famous because she'd grown this fantabulous garden with wondrous plants. Rody doodies, they rambuculated rampantly. And Spangalicious sprawled, spitting their seeds at sunset. And silver bells as tall as the town hall tower, trembled and tinkled and pretty maids danced and dipped like ballerinas in the breeze. While cockle shells croaked each full moon, cackling a cacophonous chorus. The tiger lilies tangoed together, pouncing on slugs and savouring them. And spotted Snagglethorpe ladybirds. He leapt around. Mum choked. Gone. All gone. Destroyed when the council decided to build all these flats. She went to bed. It's what she needed. Sparkle in a moment. Now what she said explained a lot. About a change of mood from smiling to foot stamping. Contrary Mary. That's what I'd heard they said about her at school gates. Well, I loved her. And I wanted to make her happy. Especially when her birthday came. I had an idea. I ferreted around in the box room for an old tin granite showed me that said, Danger, do not open. It were full of paper seed packets Mum had collected. Now, Gran had told me about these here guerrilla gardeners and how they threw the plant bombs onto bare patches of land to fill them with colour and life. I became one. With Mum's seeds and compost from pound shop under me bed, I catapulted bombs from balcony and I dropped them on way to and from school. And then I waited... And I waited. And waited. Three months later, nothing. So disappointing. And then Mum's birthday arrived, so I just left some chocolates and a card in a room. 
and that morning a squeal wakened me. Oh, what a morning glory! Mum were out on the balcony. Hey, it's a glorious morning, don't you? I heard. I know exactly what I mean. She were beaming. Rumbuculating Rudy Doody. And there, sparkling Spangalicious. Her hand to look. Colour and scent and life entwined everything, everywhere. That was Mary Mary, written and read by Irene Lofthouse. First conceived for the 26 Twits project with 26 characters, 26.org.uk. Thank you so much to Irene Lofthouse for that uh, story, Mary Mary. So a lot of Marys in this uh, in this wordy birds. So maybe hello to all Marys out there. Hope you're doing all right. We'll have to get through all the other names in the other wordy birds this week. I'm not sure we can uh, do do more than ten anyway. Um, so that's all for wordy birds this week, and uh, happy listening, happy reading, happy writing.